0: Nicholas Margaritas teaches...
1: At uh, Western Washington University. It's in Bellingham, Washington. In fact, about 20 minutes from the Canadian border.
0: And you teach...
1: I teach comparative literature. Across the board, I was officially formally trained, I suppose, as a medievalist uh, years ago.
0: Okay. And we're here today in Gatineau, Quebec at the ACTC conference, which is a gathering of academics primarily who teach and love what well, the core works, the great works. That's right. I
1: think despite our varied interests, what unites the people at the conference is a sense that some books really do matter, and matter more than other books. And it could be, you know, our selections differ, but there is a sense that it's not all indiscriminate.
0: Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Speaking of eclectic interests, you delivered a paper on the British critic George Sainsbury. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about him.
1: Well, Sainsbury is, uh, I'm giving him 15 minutes of Andy Warhol fame, because other notorious worthies, Aristotle, Longinus, uh, who's a marvelous critic, Kant, Coleridge, are all known, and sometimes actually even read, but people, uh, very few people have heard of Sainsbury, and of them, uh, even fewer, have, have ever read him. He's one of those, uh, he's like James Joyce's Ulysses or Finnegan's Wake. You've you've heard of it, but how many people have read it?
0: I I may be mistaken here, but do do people turn their nose up at him a bit? Because he's, what, a populist? They they regard him as being
1: antiquated uh, for two reasons. Uh, The kind of criticism he practices is no longer fashionable. And secondly, he was born in the mid-19th century, I think 1845 or something like that, and died in the 1930s. And uh, I think there's a general sense among people that Everything, including relevance, comes with expiration dates. And his expiration dates uh, seem to be up. That goes yeah. in the
0: face of the great books, though, of course.
1: It does, it does, yeah. And in fact, it's something that he protested as well, that great literature is never obsolete. And in fact, in his History of Criticism, which runs to 1,700 pages, he says that of good criticism also, that it is never obsolete.
0: You started off by saying that uh, he's not fashionable anymore. Why not?
1: This is true, because the way uh, criticism has developed in the last half of the 20th century to the present, uh, it is very much theory-based, ideology-based. And critics seem to carve out their special turf. They subscribe to their own particular template, whether it's new historicism or deconstructionism or feminism or Marxism. And very carefully, they, they subordinate selected books, which they call texts. To, uh, to these theories, and in the process uh, make the books serve a kind of documentary illustration to the imperatives of the theory. So, so they've reversed actually I think the proper hierarchy which would be that criticism should be ancillary, it should be a handmaid, it should serve to illuminate the literature. And if I may, I have a, uh, a juicy passage from Saintsbury that I can pull out of my pocket, what he says about theory, and what really really defines his whole view of criticism He says, uh, I'll try to imitate my imagination of his voice just so it's distinct from my voice. The critic does his best work, not in elaborating theories which will constantly break down or lead him wrong where they come into contact with the myriad-sided elusiveness of art and humanity, but in examining individual works or groups of work and in letting his critical steel strike the fire of aperçu from the flint of these. So you come in contact with the great work And it excites you. It stimulates Mm -hmm. you. It triggers these these insights. And a a statement like that, I think, can only be made by someone who, number one, has a vast knowledge of the failure of different types of critical views over the centuries. So he can see that they're all fallible when they're theory-based in one way or another. In In other words,
0: there's nothing new about what's going on now, maybe greater proliferation of it, but...
1: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in the uh, in the eighteenth century, for instance, early eighteenth century, the Augustans uh, thought the seventeenth century metaphysicals and earlier the Elizabethans couldn't write poetry. They couldn't write verse. You know, you get people like uh, I, I don't know if Pope was guilty of saying this, possibly, but uh, you know, John Donne, he can't versify. You know, mm. he he can't scan. Uh, then you get the nineteenth uh, century Romantics. You know, Coleridge was, was very, very well read and far too intelligent to, to make a mistake like this. But you know, Wordsworth reacted you know, against everything that Pope and, and that whole type of poetry represented. Uh, so that um, if if you don't fit the criteria of whatever is established by one critical view or another, you fall into these errors of not being able to appreciate the distinct individuality of something because it doesn't conform with your preconception of what it should be.
0: So he's really saying just pay attention to the text.
1: I think so, yeah, very much so. Uh, He began, tried to begin, as a poet himself, you know, stimulated by love. This is the most important thing. And uh, early on, he discovered that he didn't have it. He didn't have the makings of a poet. And I think he took all that love and energy and deflected it, put it into the next best thing, which for him was to communicate to others something of the fire and, and the love that he felt that exploded in him when he came into contact with greatness in one form or another, and try to express as eloquently as possible, enthusiastically as possible, what it was that made that work work. Worth reading, what made it great, what uh, distinguished it.
0: It seems to me one of the driving forces behind admiring beauty is to share that admiration. Other than the, the aha, the, the breath being taken away, what do you do? You want to say, look at
1: this. Oh, I, th- I think that describes him entirely, uh, completely. You want to grab a responsive listener by the arm and shake him and say, look, this is what I discovered. You know, it's, it, isn't it marvelous? You want to be able to, to share that with someone else who perceives it.
0: problem is it's subjective and emotional, and if that other person looks at it and doesn't share it immediately, then what do you do?
1: Well, you see, here's the, the other uh, difficulty for people with Sainsbury today is that they do regard him as being subjective,
0: uh, that
1: all of this is, is very emotive and such, and, and there's no objective rationale in what he is saying. It's a kind of epidictic uh, you know, reaction to things, you know, blaming, praising, judging, all of that, on whose standards. But my own sense of that is that objectivity in the pursuit of it is, is an illusion. And I, I think it's misconceived that we, uh, we are all making judgments all the time whether we admit it or not and I think it's very disingenuous to pretend that we don't and moreover I think that given the brevity of life we have to make judgments. There, there's not enough time in, in a person's lifetime to read everything he wants to read to, to listen to all the music to see all the films to travel to all the countries you're forced to make choices mm-hmm. so on what basis do you make these choices how do you, you allocate wisely and well your brief commodity of time and this is where someone like Sainsbury is an incomparable guide, because you don't have to agree with him. But knowing what his principles are... Then so he that's serves... it. Does
0: he set out principles?
1: He, he does. He explains, at least, the criteria of his estimation of works that he finds great, works that he finds good but flawed, and works that he finds... you know. Um, uh, failures. Two things that make his judgments, subjective as they are, not uh, capricious, is that he believes that a good critic and a good reader should also be familiar with uh, mediocre words and second-rate works yeah. in order to have a, a correct perspective, a true judgment of things. Sorry, remember. that was
0: what, uh, what Matthew Arnold said, you needed a touchstone.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: So he's saying... I've done the reading, and based on... uh, We we need to get to his criteria, though. What Uh, are they?
1: The the criteria are, uh, I think, a a, um, profound insight into whatever the, the writer is treating, whatever subject, and a mastery of the poetic means at his disposal to do so, how well he has managed his craft. He recognizes, and I really appreciate this, that it is almost impossible for any work to be flawless, and he is against, in fact, the pursuit of flawlessness, which sometimes leads to second-rate work. And, and he quotes Longinus in this, you know, he says uh, back in the first century BC, would you rather be this second rate poet who, who is faultless, or come on, wouldn't you rather be Homer for all his flaws? He, uh, the thing about Sainsbury that is very impressive, it's, uh, I, I don't know any other example, is how widely read he is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's staggering. Yeah. Uh, for all that I admire Harold Bloom today, for instance, uh, Bloom uh, comes up short by comparison. Why is that? But, oh, I mean, he hasn't read as much. I don't think. But so, I have great respect for him.
0: So so Sainsbury must have been some kind of incredible speed reader then.
1: He must have been, but I, I don't think he did anything else in life. He aided at his club, I think pretty much lived his club, even though he had a wife and children. Paradoxically his two sons from what I gather were almost illiterate. But but I mean, Sainsbury, too much
0: of it maybe.
1: Saintsbury had read, and this is no exaggeration, I think every major work of literature and many of the minor works of literature in every genre from the time of the ancient Greek and Romans to the beginning of the 20th century. I I know that sounds like overstatement, but really you have to go through page by page his monumental works, which are two, his history of English prosody and his history of criticism. And and you will get that impression. His counterpart, amazingly, they, they overlapped in chronology as Donald Francis Tovey, the great music critic who also taught at Edinburgh. Tovey claimed to have known every major work and many of the minor works of music from the Renaissance to the 20th century, and could play by memory any work for keyboard by Bach, Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, Brahms, and others.
0: The real draw, then, is that here is someone who knows what they're talking about because they've read everything, so nothing has escaped them, and they can then rank greatness Primarily because they can compare the works. I think so. This is very
1: important. You know, insights, even brilliant insights, can be made by any intelligent person, any perceptive uh, person. But accuracy of judgment is something else. And obviously, I think, you know, if if you've read only, say, War and Peace by Tolstoy or Anna Karenina, uh, you can make very fine insights, but you carry a different type of authority if you can say that you've read it absolutely everything that Tolstoy has written. Right. Uh, you have, for lack of a better term, it's a cliché, but you have a certain perspective. Saintsbury was especially hard, I think, on critics who lack that. In fact, he admired Aristotle very much, but he said that Aristotle would have come to very different conclusions, probably, if he had had the benefits of comparative literature. But through a kind of historical accident, it was not Aristotle's fault. You know, the Greeks didn't have access to to much more than Greek literature or specifically Attic, Athenian literature. Aristotle, unfortunately, took his own library and treated it as if it were all literature.
0: He ran it all through his brain and his taste mechanisms and then, did he did he rank the works?
1: Uh, he doesn't do any kind of, let's say, petty ranking, but I, uh, he always does a, a comparative statement. You know, he will tell you that of uh, Flaubert, you know, his distinguished work is uh, The Temptation of St. Anthony, for instance, he speaks very highly of, or uh, Sentimental
0: Education. Above uh, Madame... Above
1: Madame Bovary, or uh, he will tell you He doesn't seem to have much liking for Chrétien, the medieval French romance writer, but he does make an exception for Yvain. He says that's a very charming, marvelous work. And in fact... I, I hate to say that my appreciation of Sainsbury is a result of my opinions coinciding with right. them. That's That's sort of uh, solipsistic or <laughs> egotistical, but, but I, I find this confirmed in my own experience of reading these people.
0: Yeah. You the know, and, and
1: Sainsbury, importantly, does not try to impose his opinions on others. I mean, he would never, I don't think, try to subvert your own right to arrive at your own conclusions.
0: But what is it that he says that convinces you?
1: Well, to give you a, a few examples, he, he talks mainly about style. Mm-hmm. He, he's very, very keen on the artist's, the author's mastery of his, his craft, his art. So he, he will make statements about it and, and give you examples. And it is the rightness of what he says, the accuracy, if you test it against the work itself, to see, okay, is he speaking truly or not? And you mm. find out that, wow, he is. And, but and what, what
0: is that, the rightness? What's the, that? The rightness.
1: For instance, he will say that, uh, to give you an example, Milton, uh, when he comes to write Paradise Lost, is faced with uh, writing his his lines and end stopping them, so you come to a full stop at the end of the line, or in jamming and, and running into the next line. And he so manages to avoid the the dangers, the potential dangers of either method, which are either... Inflexible rigidity if you end stop, or a kind of looseness that falls into unmetricality if if you enjam badly.
0: So there's a balance, there's that, a he balance appreciates.
1: that he appreciates, and he, he points out that how that balance is specifically achieved by Milton when he he divides, he organizes his poem according to these flexible verse paragraphs that vary in length according to the content that he is encompassing in each of these verse paragraphs. He, he has a marvelous discussion of Chaucer's uh, mastery of the rhyme royal and how Chaucer cuts out these beautiful gems uh, that that rhythmically encapsulate a certain subject matter before he moves on to the next stanza.
0: That strikes you as as right.
1: It strikes me as right, and it strikes me as being very sensitive. What What really impresses me is that he seems to see it from the point of view of the artist himself, of the writer himself, appreciating the sort of things that a writer would appreciate in another writer. And and it is the Catholicity of his taste also that is very impressive. If if I may pull out of my pocket another statement, which I think is one of his uh, most eloquent, when he talks about the ideal critic and what the ideal critic possesses, he says, The ideal critic undoubtedly does like everything in literature that is good of its kind. He likes the unsophisticated tentatives of the earliest minstrel poetry and the cultivated perfection of form of Racine and Pope. He likes the massive vigor of the French and English 16th centuries and the alembicated exquisiteness of Catullus and Carew. He does not dislike Webster because he is not Dryden or Young because he is not Spencer. He does not quarrel with Sophocles because he is not Aeschylus or with Hugo because he is not Heine. But at the same time, it is impossible for him not to recognize that there are certain periods where inspiration and accomplishment meet in a fashion which may be sought for in vain at others. It is this openness, this receptivity, that he allows the work of art to be what it chooses to be, as long as the effect, the result, is successful. And he judges by that. There's something empirical in his his whole outlook. And, And he criticizes Émile Zola, for instance, by saying that when Zola came to things, literature, books, novels, that were outside of his own practice and what he was used to, he was very resistant to them. He, he didn't like them. He couldn't understand why you would like them. For instance, uh, Balzac happened to like, I think, Walter Scott. And Zola can't possibly understand that. He, his mind is closed after that. And Sainsbury finds this a sort of aesthetic provincialism, you know, that a good critic does not make this kind of mistake. That you should be open to appreciating, to allowing the work of art to do what it chooses to do as long as it does it well.
0: Yeah, but based on what you've just said, it sounds to me like he's evaluating the works based on the traditional form of those works. Uh, if he died in 1930, mm-hmm. I wonder if he read Ulysses, that was 22 that was or 24? 20, or... 22. Did he write on Ulysses? I
1: I have read most of Saintsbury, except his his notebooks uh, from late in life. Uh, And I've never encountered any statements that he has to make about Ulysses. And also in his history of French literature, I I looked for Proust. I was very curious to see what Mm -hmm. he would say about Proust. And I have now discovered a discussion
0: of Proust. Modernism really didn't kind of take hold until he was in an old age. Right, yeah. So how would he have accepted... That's, I guess the question is, is he an old fuddy-duddy?
1: Right, yeah. I, I don't think that's the case at all. Because if, if he began writing his earliest works uh, when he was in the 1870s, about 1880, 18, and then on to 1890, 1900, there are writers, and I'm at a loss now to think uh, which ones in his history of French literature, that he truly does appreciate... Uh, and, and in his History of English Prosody, he also touches on uh, English poets. I, I'm at risk here of making a mistake, but I think he has very complimentary things to say about, uh, about Swinburne. So he doesn't have that crustedness of, of things having settled and defined themselves so that he is rigid by that point. Tolstoy did. And, and it's amazing, you know, I, I revere Tolstoy, he's one of my favorite writers. But Tolstoy just uh, faced with uh, French symbolist poetry, could not understand it, thought it was perverse. Tolstoy was very good friends with Chekhov, for instance, and they met uh, a number of times, I think they played chess together too, and they met at Yalta on vacation and all this. He, he truly loved Chekhov. But he said to him once, he said, you know, uh, my dear Anton Paulich, he said, Shakespeare's plays are bad enough but yours are even worse. Yes. So, uh, Tolstoy had this very rigid notion of what drama does. It puts a character of a certain makeup into a situation, ties the knot, and then watches that character, in a sense, untie the knot. And that's true of a lot of drama, but it's not exclusively all that drama can do. And Tolstoy fell into that kind of rigidity in his old age. Uh, I don't think Sainsbury did.
0: Do you have an example of a, of a, a new-at-the-time playwright or poet or novelist that he would have championed that, that others, more traditional, may not have?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. And uh, I'm, I'm at a loss to, to think of one example now. I mean, again, the, the closest example I can think of, my mind keeps coming back to, is, is Swinburne. I forget if he said anything about Shaw or, or Wilde. The problems with, um, with Saintsbury, he does have faults, I think. Everyone does. Are two. One is that in unaccountable moments, he just seems wrong for unaccountable reasons. You know, T.S. Eliot called him almost always right. And I think that's a very accurate statement, both the right and the almost. For instance, Sainsbury, uh, almost totally ignored in his History of French Literature, which he revised later and did a, a different title for it, almost totally ignores... Les Liaisons Dangereuses, Dangerous Liaisons by Laclau, the epistolary novel written in the 18th century in 1782. And I I tried to find it for the conference, in fact, where he has made these vitriolic remarks about it. And uh, I couldn't even find those, but I, I, I have read them somewhere. He seems obstinately determined to deny it any merit whatsoever. And I think what triggers it is some kind of moral Discomfort, which is very odd that he would allow something like that to taint his judgment, but I think that's what it is, and the fact I mean it's a remarkable novel. I think it's the the finest of all epistolary novels it's It's so intricately interwoven with distinct individualities and drama and passion, all of this coming out in, in letters that are so cross referential in their complexity
0: Machiavellian and, and
1: I think that its sheer mastery makes it seem all the more more perverse to him. Uh, because of its uh, so-called immorality. It it seems almost like the abuse of Mm. of virtue. The other fault with uh, is this is the form that he chooses for his writing, which is the historical survey. So you get a history of English prosody, which runs to 1,500 pages, a history of criticism, 1,700 pages. And this creates two difficulties. Number one is that he treats certain authors rather superficially, Because he's got a a kind of Swiss train itinerary to keep up and make all the stops and he can't stay too long and linger. And I mean, it invites
0: sort of retrospective as opposed to contemporary. He did contemporary work. Oh, in fact, he... Did he he, work for a paper? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. He began as a a reviewer, in fact. Okay. And I think that's also, that nurtured his conception of criticism, that it is criticism's job to evaluate and to take something, a work of art, a literature, say, if it's good... Why is it good? If it's bad, what are its faults? And, and at the same time that he slights attention on some writers, he also spends uh, a little too much fussy circumstantiality on minor, negligible writers, because for the sake of thoroughness, they just have to be mentioned. So sometimes uh, there are stretches that, uh, quite honestly,
0: are tedious. But it sounds like he's a champion for the art of criticism... Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. what did, did he say anything about why it's important?
1: I don't recall any explicit statement he said regarding why, as a profession or as an activity, it is important. But it's implicit in everything he did. That it's a way of preserving and passing on excellence. You know that that we are custodians of uh, a whole tradition of beautiful things and marvelous achievements that you don't want to lose. And the way to preserve those is to pass them on by communicating their excellence to others who will in turn...
0: And why don't you want to lose them?
1: Oh, I think it's regrettable to lose any specimen or uh, you know, flora of, of beauty in life. Uh, why? Why? Well, because they're, they're not necessary to human life. I don't think art is, but they make life worth living. They, they enrich our lives... I think art is a... It, it comes down, I think, to what the effect of art is on the human spirit. And I think is that it, it uh, augments our human experience by confirming what we have ourselves found important in life or by revising it or by correcting it. It is like a conversation. It's like a dialogue. In other words, why, uh, why do you love talking to friends that you consider good, deep, personal friends, uh, a meeting of minds. You know, the the Shakespearean, let us not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Uh, He's talking about love, but you can say the same thing about filia and and friendship. The the sort of feeling that Montaigne had for Étienne de de la Boétie. Uh, They were marvelous friends, and when uh, Étienne de la Boétie died, Montaigne felt an irreplaceable loss in his life, you know, that he could never find a friend to whom he could open up his spirit and communicate. We're, we're all fundamentally alone in life, I think, except some of us realize it more than others. And so uh, coming across these minds that are kindred minds that, that share these important things with us, it's very important.
0: So he's he's bringing them to our attention, he's making sure that, that we sh- uh, benefit from them the way that that he has? Uh,
1: maybe not necessarily the same way he has but that we benefit I, you know the work of art is, is rich enough that we might find some benefit in it that uh, has eluded him mm-hmm. but you know uh, yeah. I think when when I pick up my my Proust or Tolstoy or Chaucer or Nabokov or Joyce or Flaubert the, the hours that I spend reading that just like the hours I spend listening to say Beethoven or Schubert or, or watching a, a Fellini movie it is as if I'm having a conversation mm-hmm. with that artist Granted, it's a one, rather one-way conversation. Okay. I mean, yeah. I'm
0: listening to yeah, you But you're in your mind, you're, you're talking exactly, back. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. The importance of someone like Saintsbury is, you, you, you alluded to earlier on in the conversations, we've only got a certain amount of time. So he's pointing out how to spend that time in a way that he thinks will be the best way to spend that time.
1: I think so, yeah. He's a good reference when, when you're in doubt about anything. Hmm. Uh, and I think that today, uh, Harold Bloom functions the same way because he too is concerned with the notion of greatness and what matters, uh, what, uh, what is worth coming to. I, the fact that he could write a book called you know, the, the Western Canon. Uh, I'll give you a personal example. There's so much. I've, I've spent a whole lifetime trying to catch up with the last 3,000 years of literature and the last you know, 1,000 years of music. Uh, only the last 100 years of film, that's a little easier, maybe. But these proliferate as time goes on. You know, Every decade produces a proportionately greater and mm-hmm. greater... It's, it's, it's like the Malthusian theory of population. You know, yes, it, mm-hmm. it increases geometrically, mm-hmm. so it's a, it's a losing battle. Mm-hmm. So, faced with all this, I hear the name José Saramago, Okay, I look him up, this Portuguese novelist who won the Nobel Prize. That doesn't mm. mean anything because uh, Tolstoy never won it, Proust no, did not Kafka didn't, Nabokov didn't. it, yeah. So is he worth reading or is he just a flash in the pan? So he made his reputation at about the age of 60. Finally, he was noticed with his Balthazar and Blismunda. And after that, he went on to write another dozen or so novels uh, until he died in his late 80s. In the past three months, you know, having begun with one and found it provocative, interesting, good, stimulating, exciting enough. I went to others. I've read about a dozen novels now in the last three months. Obviously, I think it's time well worth spent. And uh, I think to myself, my life would have been impoverished had I not ever gotten to him, had he remained, you know, an unknown quantity, uh, a mystery.
0: Was there a critic that put you uh, on that path?
1: Uh, no, just uh, very rare people whose judgment I trust almost implicitly.
0: So in a way, uh, Saintsbury, you could say, would be like one of those friends then. I think so. And does he write engagingly, or is it, is that, it that antiquated? Is... Or...
1: Oh, that is another thing, and I'm glad you mentioned it, is that you would think that somebody who died in 1934, 36, whatever, and who did his major work around the turn of the century, 1900 to 1910, oh. Uh, and, and was into, uh, you know, port wine and English gentleman clubs. Uh, I don't know if he wore plus fours or not, but, <laughs> but that he would be somebody who is, you know, dry, dusty, uh, you know, filled with, Snobbish. with yes, yeah, snobbishness and all this. He's marvelous to read. Mm-hmm. He writes extremely well. The uh, people who have admired him and praised him the, the adjective they use to describe his writing is gusto. He writes with great gusto. It's it's very personal. It's very infectious. He is anything but circumspect and cautious. Uh, you know, opinionated. They, yeah, very opinionated, and I truly appreciate this. You know, you, you know where you stand with him. If you test his judgments and his comments against your own experience of the works, and you find that there is enough of a coincidence then he's for you. You know, he's a good guide. If you find that you disagree and that you don't like him, then you know, uh, based on his judgments, what to avoid. It's, it's like people who tell you, oh, you have to see this movie, it's, it's fantastic. And based on what you think of their judgment, it is either a movie that to go ahead and see, or you mm. know you have to avoid that movie, it's probably bad.
0: So he's consistent then? He's consistent. With, with consistent to his own taste, obviously. I think but. so.
1: But uh, he, writes, he writes beautifully... And this distinguishes him also from uh, current criticism, which is so, so impersonal, so uh, void of passion and and personal flavor. You know, modern critics now, because they they pick these templates, new historicism, uh, deconstructionism, feminism.
0: Academic critics. Academic critics, Mm. especially,
1: yeah. They seem interchangeable. You, you cover up the name of the person writing mm. and you mm. can't
0: tell the difference. Is there anyone like Saintsbury at work today?
1: Again, I would single out uh, Harold Bloom. And I think uh, Harold Bloom, I think his best writing is the general writing that he's been doing for the general public in the last 15 or 20 years okay. and not his earlier academic writing. No,
0: no, it's funny, you know. I found the same way about Frank Kermode. Early on in their academic careers, they've I think, feel that they have to make these kind of convoluted cases and the writing isn't anywhere near as precise or, or entertaining or, as you say, doesn't have anywhere near the, the gusto that, uh, that yeah. the, the general reader enjoys.
1: Well, I think aging has something to do with it, too. And, you know, <laughs> okay. I think it's a misconception that uh, people have that as you grow older, you become less passionate. Mm. Michelangelo had it right. You know, Michelangelo wrote fantastic sonnets, uh, marvelous poetry, some of it. It's, it's crude and unpolished and rough, you know, technically. It's, it's hardly Petrarchan, but it's so, so visceral. And Michelangelo always believed that as you grow older, you become more passionate, at least he was. He says, you know, if you take a, a green twig and you put it in fire, it's going to burn. But if you take dry twigs, <laughs> you know, dry wood, it's going to go up in flames right away. Mm-hmm. And, and you look at Harold Bloom today, not not to switch from Saintsbury, but it's a similar analogous case. You you asked who is similar to yeah, today, yeah. And, and Bloom is about eighty, I think, somewhere in there, and conscious that uh, time is running out. You know, uh, it's it's a matter of you know a decade. Who knows? And uh, you you feel that as time runs out, you you want to communicate. There's a, there's a kind of passionate fervor to let people know what you've learned in life, mm-hmm. to, to pass it on, you know, the, 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 the baton of, of insight and perception. And, and you sort of throw caution to the winds. You know, old people, for instance, are much more bold about speaking directly than, than young people mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's a sense Less of Less concerned
0: about what other people think. Exactly, yeah. yeah.
1: And I, I think that's something that has to be respected and appreciated. But one, one other thing that I should say is that uh, for some reason or other in the humanities, I think there's uh, a great percentage of people who somehow have the illusion that the humanities advance in the same way that the sciences do. So that each generation is somehow more with it, mm. more perceptive yes. than previous generations that were benighted, that are sort of palpating their way to modernity, but they haven't quite gotten to where we are and we somehow see better. And Sainsbury is a marvelous corrective to that and proof that, you know, good criticism, again, is is never
0: outdated. Greatness, yeah, you're right, is, is timeless. Who did he think was the best?
1: I think if he had to, let's, let's narrow it down as in a beauty contest maybe where you have runners up and finally you announce the victor. Mm. But of the people he admired tremendously, he admired... Uh, Coleridge, very much.
0: As a critic or a poet? As,
1: as both. as mm-hmm. both. In fact, uh, I think I can pull this out of my pocket, too. What he has to say about Coleridge.
0: Coleridge, of course, was a great talker, which we yeah. don't get. Exactly. Great exactly. conversationalist.
1: But a bad lecturer, according to some accounts, he would just wander off in these divigations and, and lose himself in digressions. But he says about Coleridge, he had read immensely... The play of his intellect, when opium and natural tendency to digression did not drive it devious and muddle it, was marvellously subtle, flexible, and fine. He could take positions not his own with remarkable alacrity. Coleridge was a metrist, such as we have not more than five or six, even in English poetry, and could colour and harmonise language in such a way that, at his best, not Shakespeare himself is his superior and hardly anyone else his equal." So Coleridge, he also had a great admiration for Dante and fought for recognition of Dante because Dante's De Vulgari Eloquio, which is the first systematic treatise uh, on uh, poetics uh, that you get in the Middle Ages, is, is hardly read by, except by specialists today, and it's a marvelous work. But I think his favorite, favorite of all critics was probably Longinus. Because again, Longinus had this sense that you confront greatness. What is that experience like? And when you've experienced it, how do you communicate it to someone else so that they experience it as well? And in the whole process, one thing I failed to say is that Coleridge also believed in the directness of confrontation with with great art. He said that he refused to obtain his knowledge at second hand. He said, every judgment that I make, every statement, no matter how general or how particular, comes from first-hand direct knowledge of the works in their original language. And so I'm sure he had read Russian literature, I'm sure he'd read Scandinavian literature, but he never talks about it because he couldn't read those languages. He only knew Greek, Latin, Italian, French, German, and English. Uh, Is that all? Yeah. That's all, That's all, yeah. So he limits himself to that. But I think that's, uh, that's marvelous. Uh, that,
0: Sorry, you're talking about Saintsbury. Saintsbury. Sainsbury. Not Coleridge. Not
1: Coleridge, no. So Saintsbury yeah, uh, had this direct first hand knowledge of these literatures that he talks about in their original language.
0: Well, thanks so much for uh, bringing your enthusiasm for saintsbury uh, to us today
1: well it's it's been a pleasure because uh, again i mean what what fires me is is the desire to make other people aware of you know deserved writers that uh, you know get ignored it's, you know
0: and it's so interesting too, the motivation of a critic is either. To share this wonderful experience with others and the hope that they will experience the same joy that you have, or i 'd say contrary outrage that certain works are receiving unnecessary praise. Mm-hmm. would you say those things really fired saintsbury or i don 't think so.
1: i don 't think the latter I think okay. the former because he is an enthusiast, but I think the latter quality to in a sense, uh, deflate works that have gotten inordinate or undeserved attention is something he would not set out to do, and I think quite rightly, because those works are going to die if if they're not worth it. You 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 cannot do anything useful, I think, out of hatred. I I really, uh, at, at the risk of sounding sentimental, I would say that only love is, is uh, appropriate when it comes to art. And and I think it applies to artists as well. You know, you have so many people, and you can see them in, in uh, universities today who study creative writing and all this, and they want to become writers so they can lash out, and, uh, you know, they, they hate something, and they want to uh, denigrate it in their writing. This will get you nowhere. It's a wrong reaction. Hatred is not creative. Only love is, is creative. And I think, Sainsbury understood that about art and understood it as being the motivating force behind his own criticism.
0: Well, thanks uh, very much. Thank you for the opportunity. I've been speaking with Nicholas Margaritas, who is a professor of comparative literature
1: at uh, Western Washington University. It's in Bellingham, Washington on the West Coast.
0: Thanks very much for your time.
1: Thank you.